my name is Farah Osbeck. Welcome to Military Law Matters, the podcast that gives you insight into military law so you know your rights and you don't become a victim of injustice. Today, we'll be talking to David Lowenstein. David's a lawyer who works at a law firm in its Veteran Benefit Practice Group. David's a former appellate attorney in the Office of the Veterans Affairs General Counsel's Office and represented the Secretary of Veterans Affairs before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. David brings his unique insight and perspective of the VA disability process as he now represents veterans and their families to get the disability benefits they deserve. You will definitely want to listen to this if you have a claim with the VA and want to understand the process. Good morning, Dave. David, I'm so glad you could join us today on the Military Law Matters podcast, the podcast that serves the best listeners in the world, members and former members of the United States Armed Forces. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great, David. And uh, so where are you calling in from? Calling in from Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay. So, David, um, I know you know it's our job on this show to arm our listeners with knowledge so they don't become a victim of injustice, and I know that you are ready to arm our listeners with important information today. David Lowenstein joined Goodman Allen Donnelly's Veterans Benefit Practice Group in January 2009 following eight years as an appellate attorney in the Office of the Veterans Affairs General Counsel. He served four of those years as a senior appellate attorney where he represented the Secretary of Veterans Affairs before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. With extensive experience in the VA adjudicative process, including all aspects of disability entitlement, Mr. Lowenstein brings a unique understanding and compelling perspective to the representation of veterans and their families in the disability benefits claims. Today, David will be talking about the claims process and appeals at the VA and the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And having worked for the U.S. Court of Appeals for VA Appeals for eight years, David is well-versed in this area. So, David, before I uh, go on to ask you some questions, is there anything I left about about you or your practice that you'd like to add? Um, just to add that because I'm calling in from Silver Spring, just want to make it clear that we're a Virginia firm. We have offices in Norfolk, Charlottesville, and Richmond. And the nature of our practice really lends itself to representing veterans all over the country or the world. So just because we're limited to... Virginia and Maryland, um, it does not mean that we cannot, and actually we represent veterans all over the world. So just want to put that out. Uh, it's not a limiting factor in any capacity uh, where the attorney is actually located. Um, okay. And I also, also just to note that at Goodman Allen Donnelly, I am one of five attorneys um, who work specifically and solely for veterans and their dependents. And we devote obviously 100% of our time to representing veterans and their dependents at the VA and the federal court system. Uh, we're one of the largest firms that actually has so many attorneys and support staff working solely for veterans and their dependents. Um, and it's an extremely unique area of law, and I have enjoyed it thoroughly for the past 17 years. Wow, that is great. Um, yeah, that's a, a wonderful benefit to have a practice uh, concentrating on veterans. And thank you so much for adding the fact that where you're located doesn't matter since it is a federal practice. So it's not like you have to, you know, be filing, you know, in, in a state court. So I appreciate you 
adding that, and I know that from my practice too, I help military members with adverse action type actions and different things they're facing. And it doesn't matter where they are because it's federal practice and we can literally, um, you know, help clients in another country if they're a military member or happen to be living there. So, but that was very good that you added that. So David, um, so before we even get to the stage where a veteran is now filing an appeal before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the veterans claims, do you have any advice for service members who are still on active duty in order, um, what they should be doing in order to preserve any claims they may have in the future? Absolutely. Um, I think it's critical that current servicemen, servicewomen actually document any symptoms, diagnoses, any treatment uh, that they go in for that they actually had documentation. Oftentimes we're reviewing cases um, even where someone's recently out of service, but more often those that have been out of service for some time and, and just get around to following a claim, and there's just an absence of actual service medical records. So just want to make it clear that if you are having medical problems that you do want to seek treatment for them, you do want to get it documented, um, and also to actually request copies of those records. Um, unfortunately, uh, VA, there was a fire back in the early 70s and destroyed so many critical records. And uh, you just want to have those records. You want to make sure that you personally have a copy. So if anything ever happens and VA loses it or it's destroyed accidentally, uh, that you have a second copy of those records. Okay. Um, I would also recommend that you actually get names and contact information from fellow servicemen. Uh, should you need to reach them in the future. Oftentimes, it's critical to get some statements from those who serve with you who can actually say, yeah, I, I saw this happening, or this is what I observed, or this is what I uh, knew happened. But the veteran doesn't keep in touch or has no way of contacting those that he or she served with. So getting names and contact information, I think, would be very important as well. Great advice. Uh, yeah, so for those people listening still on active duty, definitely get copies of your records before you leave, and this way you can still get the copies uh, by writing in, but have them and uh, and the contact information. That's that's fantastic advice. Right. Um, so good. Well, thank you for that, and I think that will be very helpful to our listeners on active duty. So, David, so tell me, so what are the stages that a veteran goes through before it actually gets to the U.S. Court of Appeals for veterans' claims? Uh, so we actually start with just filing a claim, um, and that is done on a VA form. Um, recently, VA required that it be completed. Uh, it's not a, a long form, but it, it needs to be filled out completely on the form. If it's not complete, VA will actually notify you, and you'll have a certain amount of time to actually get that completed and filed. Um, and that can be done at your local regional office. There's 56 regional offices throughout the country, including the Philippines and Puerto Rico. Um, so once the, the claim is actually filed, uh, at some point, the VA, the, re the regional office, will actually make a decision. And you have one year within the data of the decision to file what's called a notice of disagreement. That actually starts the appeal process. Um, after the notice of disagreement is filed, then the VA will issue what's called a statement of the case. And that basically uh, provides some more detail and gives some more law on exactly what the issues are. Um, there's really no time frame that the VA has to issue a statement of the case, but 
they're required to issue a statement of the case at some point after the notice of disagreement is filed. After the statement of the case is issued, then the veteran has another requirement to actually file what to file what's called a Form 9, a substantive appeal, and that will actually perfect the appeal. So there's two things that the veteran actually needs to get done in order to have the appeal continued. You need to initially file that notice of disagreement following a, a rating decision by the VA, and then after the statement of the case is issued, to file the Form 9 or the substantive appeal. At that point, the case will then be forwarded, transferred to the Board of Veteran Appeals. And the Board of Veteran Appeals is located in Washington, D.C. The Board of Veteran Appeals will issue a decision. And if you're if the veteran is not satisfied with the decision, then only the veteran can appeal a decision. So if the board actually grants a claim in part, there's no way for the VA. The VA is not allowed to appeal. Only the veteran can appeal a decision. So the veteran will then appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veteran Claims, and you have 120 days to file that appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veteran Claims. Um, I'll have to say that just last week, President Trump signed what's called the Veterans Appeals Improvement and Modernization Act of 2017. And it's unclear at this point how this is going to affect the whole appeals process, but it will have some substantive changes to how everything is done. Um, there's actually three appeals lanes that have been carved out um, that are now going to have some effect. We're not sure exactly how, but it will give veterans three opportunities or three different ways in which to appeal a decision um, by the regional office. So, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but this just happened last week and um, interesting to see how this unfolds. Okay. Well, maybe once that gets settled, you can come back on the show and, and talk to us about that once, you know, when it's more clear about these, uh, the new, um, the new uh, statement that just came out. David, let me ask you, you said 120 days to file the appeal. Is that, uh, can you get an extension if you need more time? So no, it's it's mandated that the 120 days, it's statutory, so there's no uh, wiggle room around that. Having said that, there are a few exceptions, though, that the court has carved out. Uh, but the overwhelming majority of cases, uh, you have to file within 120 days or the appeal is final. Um, those few exceptions um, are really rare. They happen. One example is uh, the, the amount of time could be told if there's extraordinary circumstances that have to deal with uh, veterans' mental state. Um, but it's not just a typical, uh, you know, a claim for a psychiatric disorder. There have to be extraordinary circumstances. And it's, it's very detailed, but it's also very uh, limited in and practice and actually doesn't happen that often. There are a few cases at the court that deal with it, but by and large, the majority of cases um, don't fall within uh, any need to, to deal with those few exceptions. Okay. So once someone then files their appeal uh, with the Board of Veterans Appeal, what's what happens next? Uh, so typically what happens is the government will create what's called a RBA, record before the agency, and that is essentially a copy of the veteran's claims file. Uh, it's put on a CD. If the veteran has an attorney, if not, a hard copy is mailed to the veteran. 
and the attorney, I'll, I'll assume for the purposes of now that the veteran is represented by an attorney, uh, the attorney will review the record before the agency, um, make sure that it's complete, accurate, all the documents are legible. And once we get past that stage, assuming that there's no problems with the RBA, then the court will issue a briefing conference. And that's an opportunity for the VA attorney uh, who works at the Office of General Counsel. That's where I used to work. Um, the VA attorney and a CLS attorney, Central Legal Staff Attorney, will have a briefing conference to discuss the issues and to see if any resolution can be made. Uh, typically, the result of these conferences um, lead to what's called a joint motion for remand, uh, which is an agreement by the parties that the Board of Veteran Appeals, again, that's the decision that was appealed to the court, that there was some error contained in that decision. And the parties work out the details in terms of the joint motion for remand. It gets filed with the court and the court within a few weeks typically will grant that motion. And then the case will be sent back to the Board of Veteran Appeals. Now, in cases where there is not an agreement, uh, either the government believes that the Board of Veteran Appeals decision is, is fine, or if they agree to send back one claim and not another, and the veteran's attorney does not agree, uh, then briefing will be completed. And the government, uh, I'm sorry, the veteran's attorney will then file a brief before the court um, within 30 days following the briefing conference. And then the government will have their time to file their brief. Uh, sometimes after the government's attorney reviews the brief, they'll call up the VA the uh, veteran's attorney and say, hey, at this point, we actually now agree to send the case back. But there are plenty of cases where the government's attorney will file a brief. And at that point, the, veter the veteran's attorney will actually file a reply brief. And then the case will be before the, before the judge. Um, and a judge will make a decision anywhere from several months to longer. Um, many years ago, there was such a backlog at the court that cases would sit uh, in chambers for more than a year. But now that there are more judges on staff and actually three were just added to the the panel or the at, at the court. Um, so now they're, I forget the actual number now since there's three more, but there's a number of additional judges and decisions have been coming out much quicker than in the past. Okay. So David, now before this judge makes the decision, is that is the military member or the veteran able to now attend that hearing where the before the judge makes a decision, how does that work? So the overwhelming majority, you know, 90 plus percent of the cases are done um, on the briefs. The the decision is done on the briefs. There's no actual argument. Uh, in cases where the court will order uh, the case to be argued, uh, it's typically before a panel of three judges. Uh, sometimes it's en banc of the, the entire court. Um, at that point, if a veteran wanted to attend the argument, he or she could. Um, most of the times when an argument is scheduled and heard, the, the veteran does not appear. Um, veterans are located all over the country and the court is in Washington, D.C. So, you know, it would be costly. Um, and there wouldn't be really a reason to have uh, the veteran actually appear. The veteran's not going to be arguing the case. 
Um, it is transcribed, and you actually go to the court's website and actually hear the argument. So unless one really had a particular reason to be there, it typically does not happen. Okay. Um, and decisions, like I said before, are, are done on the briefs. So, I mean, I've heard before of, you know, military member, I mean, veterans saying, you know, I got a letter from the VA. It says they're going to have some hearing and, you know, in this state, at this location, this time. What What is that referring to? What hearing is that? And then they asked, well, do I have to travel to that? Right. So those are hearings at the agency level or the um, at the regional office or the veteran of Board of Veteran Appeals. What I was referring to before the arguments, that's at the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veteran Claims. So the hearings themselves, they're basically held anywhere as long as the VA facility where you're having the hearing has the proper video or audio equipment. Um, I have personally participated in a few hearings uh, in Washington, D.C., where one of my clients was located in Alaska. I had another hearing where my client was actually incarcerated. So um, there's no requirement or no really no prohibition to have a hearing if your attorney is located in a different state than the actual veteran uh, or um, so it doesn't matter where you're located um, I would say generally speaking we as a firm don't necessarily have many hearings and that's prim primarily because it's so it's so much document, uh, the document review is really what's necessary. It's not, the hearings really aren't going to change things. Now, there are times where having a hearing may be helpful, and that's why we have had hearings in the past, but typically it, it's not going to add value to the case uh, unless there's absolutely no way of getting written statements from the veteran somehow, um, although that's usually unlikely, um, or if there's an opportunity to have some human interaction, obviously, with the person who will be adjudicating the case, that would be helpful. So there are times actually where hearing is helpful. Uh, I would say for the most part, it is not. And if you're not represented by counsel, maybe in those situations, it's it's more appropriate to have a hearing. Okay. Yeah, that, that was really helpful that you clarified that because if people are concerned, you know, veterans are concerned that, you know, they're locating one state and they have to pay money, you know, because no one pays for the, the trip to go to a, to where the hearing is held. That's not an issue. Or I know, you know, when we were talking before, you say something, there's VTC capability. So if there was something that needed to be said, you can also appear by VTC. Is that correct? Right. Um, there's also travel hearings. So there isn't a requirement for a veteran to actually go to a specific to a different state. Um, the Board of Veteran Appeals has so if your case is at the Board of Board of Veteran Appeals, they have travel hearings. Um, there's a ways in which to find out about that. So there's really no need for a veteran to have to travel and incur any expenses uh, to have a hearing. Okay, and when you say travel hearings, that's when VA personnel travel to different locations periodically is that what you mean right either that or you can set it up remotely so even if there isn't a remote uh hearing or where someone actually travel you can set one up remotely and like i said before that i've done that in a few cases so there's really no need if someone's worried that they're not going to be able to have a hearing because it would be costly 
Um, there's really uh, no reason for that. That should not be the case. Okay, great. And, and if someone is working with an attorney who knows all this stuff inside out, I mean, I think the attorney would be able to put the client at ease and say, look, based on your case, we really do not have to appear, you know, in person, etc. We've written our briefs, our arguments, or in your case, you know, we should. So the attorney is going to know that it's all fact specific, as you said. And in some cases, it may help most cases not necessary. But that's where I guess the attorney definitely comes in handy. So, well, thank you for explaining all that. That really clarifies matters for me, um, and I hope for our listeners as well. So, David, I, you know, you always hear the the term service connected. What what is the concept of service connected as it applies to the VA process? Right. So, service connection is is proving ultimately that a current condition, a current disability was caused at some point during service, either through an event, an injury, or just originated during service. Um, and there's two ways to get service connection. Um, one is on a direct basis and the other presumptive basis. And I'll explain what a direct basis is first. Um, for direct basis, you need three criteria in order to prove service connection. Uh, one is competent medical evidence of a current disability. So it goes without saying, if you don't have a current disability, there's nothing for VA to service connect you for. You're not gonna get service connection and uh, disability benefits. So you need a current disability. Um, you also need evidence of incurrence or aggravation of a disease during service. Um, so you need the current disability, you need something that happened during service, and then ultimately, in, in the majority of cases, you need a nexus between the in-service injury or disease and the current disability, and that usually comes by way of a medical opinion, either a medical opinion from the VA or, or in the private sector, but a doctor or, or a medical professional, rather, uh, provides a medical opinion linking the two. Um, so if you have all three, uh, then VA will ultimately approve and grant service connection. And then depending on the actual disability that you're trying to seek service connection for, uh, VA will rate the claim under a diagnostic code uh, anywhere from 0%, meaning they recognize the injury was caused during service, but it's not at a compensable level, meaning you're not going to get money on a monthly basis up to 100% disability benefits. And not every disability goes up to 100%. Some disabilities go up only to 10%. Uh, so it really depends on the actual disability and what the disability level is. And VA, they will adjudicate the case, decide the case, and decide what the appropriate disability level is. Um, so that's for direct service connection. The other way to get service connection is on a presumptive basis. And that's in a situation where VA may conclude that certain disabilities were caused by service, even if there wasn't any specific evidence proving, proving this. Um, an example is diabetes, for example. So if someone, if a veteran served in Vietnam, then the veteran's presumed to have been exposed to Agent Orange. And if after service, you later develop diabetes, then, then you're entitled to presumptive service connection um, because VA has considered diabetes to be a cause, um, a result of exposure to Agent Orange, and they made a 
a regulation, a law that says, which is obviously very veteran friendly, as long as you were in Vietnam, you're presumed to have been exposed. So we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt and you'll get service connection for for that condition. And there's a list, a, a long list of different disabilities, uh, not necessarily specific to Vietnam or exposure to Agent Orange, but uh, that one can presumptively get entitlement to service connection. Okay, David, if someone wanted to find that list, is there a place that you know readily where they can locate that list to see if there's anything they might actually have experienced and might be a presumptive uh, service connection? Well, the law that controls uh, VA issues is 38 CFR, which is Code of Federal Regulations, but um, it's contained in there. I don't actually have the actual provision handy, but you could easily Google it, um, you know, probably by typing in VA uh, disability, presumptive or presumption service connection, and that probably will at least lead you in the right direction. Okay. Um, okay. Great. Obviously, yeah. consulting with a service officer or an attorney will, will get you a more direct result. Yes. Or answer. Definitely, definitely. But the, the CFR is 38. Yeah. It, I mean, this is a, a very complicated area of law. It's even complicated for attorneys who don't deal with it, uh, these issues. So, I mean, I mean, I guess people can try to, you know, do these things themselves. But I mean, I just know from me in my practice, uh, you know, attorneys who practice in a certain area really have the ability to know exactly what the issues are and how to get to the end result that the member is trying to reach. So, um, yeah, that's that's a good point. So let me ask you about PTSD. I mean, you, I hear a lot of veterans, uh, you know, talking about PTSD they got where they may not have actually gotten a diagnosis while they were in the service, but realized later they had PTSD. Who do they have to actually go to to get an evaluation where it would be accepted by the VA? Right. So that actually, the law has changed um, within the past few years. It used to be to get a medical diagnosis of PTSD and, and to use that in support of a claim for PTSD, um, you could get a medical professional in the private sector or VA that diagnosed you with PTSD and linked it to service. Um, the law now has changed where in order to prove entitlement to service connection, you need a VA psychologist or psychiatrist or one with whom VA contracts to actually confirm the stressor and to make sure that the stressor is sufficient to support a diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So it, it limits in the sense that you have to have a medical opinion from a VA psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, but if you get a private medical professional to diagnose, diagnose PTSD and connect it to, to service, um, it's still helpful information and still should be submitted to the VA. Uh, VA at that point, if, if VA has not gotten its own opinion, um, that may require VA to actually assist the veteran and obtain a VA medical opinion on the issue. So it's still important and um, it's still helpful. Although ultimately, if you're going to get service connected for PTSD, a VA doctor will have to weigh in uh, in some capacity. Okay. That's good to know. Um, 
Another thing uh, that, you know, I've heard veterans talk about is that they had a service-connected condition, they were, it was compensated by the VA, but their condition was aggravated. It got worse as the years went on. Can the veteran then go back to the VA and request another evaluation to perhaps get a higher rating, or once you get the rating, is that pretty much final? No, not final at all. Um, absolutely. At, at, at any point, if a veteran's condition worsens, uh, it could be uh, weeks, months, uh, even years later. If a condition worsens and you think you're entitled to a higher rating, um, then absolutely you can follow a, a claim. Uh, there's a, a specific VA uh, form to fill out, um, and you indicate on that form it's specific for an increased rating. So you follow that with the VA. If you think a medical examination is needed, um, then you, you want to make it clear to the VA that your condition has worsened and you think a new examination is warranted. Um, if you are one that really doesn't get treatment at the VA, uh, but you have a private medical professional who gives you treatment, then you want to submit that medical evidence along with your, your claim for a higher rating. Um, in all of these claims, whether it's following an original claim for service connection or a claim for a higher rating, you really want to be prepared. You want to have as best as you can the evidence to support your claim at the earliest stages as possible. Uh, it's not, it's not, it doesn't hurt the claim if you don't have that evidence right away. It, it could delay the case for sure, but trying to have that evidence up front. Um, will only help your case and hopefully get it through the system much quicker than than if you didn't. Okay. Yeah, good advice again on that point. David, I recently heard of a, a member, a veteran who had a pending application with the VA. Um, the application was pending, and during that, before a decision was made, the veteran unfortunately passed away. What happens, um, can the spouse take over the claim or, you know, what, what rights do the spouse of that veteran have at that point? Right. So it, again, things have changed over the a number of years, but it, it used to be when a veteran passed away, the claim would go away as well. Um, but that has changed, fortunately. So now spouses have an opportunity to substitute on behalf of um, a veteran who passed away, a spouse who passed away. Um, and if that claim, if the claim is pending, uh, then the spouse has up to one year to request substitution. Uh, once that one year passes, then the claim will will end if there was no request. So now it gives an opportunity for spouses to basically fill in the shoes for the deceased veteran and continue the claim as if the veteran was still alive. And if the claim is successful, the spouse would then get the benefits? The spouse would get uh Benefits depending uh, on accrued benefits. So depending on what the evidence was at the time the veteran passed away, um, it's a it's a limited basis. Although once a year passes, um, if a, a spouse believes that the veteran passed away due to a service connected disability or due to service, then the veteran can file a separate claim for the cause of the veteran's death, um, and that is a an ability for a spouse to actually get compensated at a different, at a different, in a different way. Um, so there's really two ways the spouse can can get benefits. One is in a more limited accrued benefits way. If she continues the claim, 
uh, substitutes on behalf of the veteran, or if after that year passes, uh, then she could file a separate claim and get compensation based on uh, the cause of death, if that's proven. Okay. That's, that's a really good point. So if there's any listeners who are family members, not the veteran themselves, but a spouse, I mean, it's possible there might be some benefits due um, to you based on the factors that David just explained. So it's, it's always helpful. If you're not sure, you may want to consult with someone like David to talk about it because people like David know this stuff inside out and can really give you the best advice uh, so you don't really waste your time you know, trying to figure it all out. Um, okay. So David, you know, I know you get a lot of questions from, you know, clients or people that ask you, uh, you know, the same kind of questions over and over. Um, is there some very common misconceptions that misconceptions that clients have that you could perhaps share with the audience? Cause they may have that same question as well. Sure. Um, there are actually a few that, um, I've come across, uh, one in particular is, a uh, veteran will say, well, I didn't realize I can hire an attorney because I have other claims where, or, or even all my claims, I currently are represented by a service officer or a service organization. And the law does not preclude the the opportunity or the ability to have both a service officer from a service organization. And when I say service officer and service organization, I'm talking about Disabled American veterans, American Legion, veteran of foreign wars, any any service organization, um, typically they have service officers that represent veterans. And um, as long as it's clear on what's called the 2122A, it's a form that recognizes who the representative is. So if it's listed that an attorney is representing on claim A, a service officer can still represent the veteran on claims B and C. So there's no requirement only to have an attorney or only to have a service officer. So that's really one uh, common misconception that I hear. Um, now, there are some service organizations that have their own internal policy where they either will represent the veteran on all issues or none. So that could be a situation where Either the veteran will have to continue representation, have the service organization represent, or will have to have the attorney um, because the service organization itself won't split it up. Uh, another misconception that I hear is I can't afford an attorney um, to represent me at the VA or the veterans court. Now, when we represent as in the private sector, there is no, we don't charge veterans for representation. It's done on a contingency basis. So if we're not successful in getting the veteran higher rating or entitlement to service connection of getting any benefits for our client, the veteran owes us nothing. So uh, if we are successful, then a percentage is withheld from the retroactive award. The VA, act the VA will actually withhold a uh, small percentage and will release those fees to the attorney. But again, it, there's no uh, hourly rate. There's no upfront cost for a veteran to be represented by uh, our firm in particular. Um, and if there's representation at the veterans court, if the attorney is successful in getting the case either settled or in most cases remanded, sent back to the Board of Veteran Appeals because of one error or another uh, by the Board of Veteran Appeals, the attorney can get reimbursed 
uh, for their time spent at the court through what's called EJA, Equal Asset Access to Justice Act. And that that's a statute that's reimbursed um, that comes from the government to the attorney. It's uh, nothing comes out from the veterans. So um, again, veterans do not pay us on any kind of hourly basis. Um, and so it wouldn't be an issue that they can't afford to have an attorney represented by a private attorney. Um, and so really those are the two biggest misconceptions that I, uh, com- that I come across. Okay. And that, that's huge. I, cause I wasn't really familiar how that worked as far as, uh, the contingency. That is a, a, certainly a great benefit for uh, clients, uh, who actually, you know, has some, some compensable perhaps rating and just feels they can't afford it, well, you don't have to worry about it because the attorney's going to do their job and do a really good job because the the client winning means, you know, they are able to to also win as well. So that that's a really great service. Uh, is that co- is that just your firm or is that generally how if you know how how attorneys handle those type of ca- these type of cases? Generally, okay. I think that's across the board. There may be some exceptions and I'm just not familiar with how particular attorneys do it. But by and large, my experience is that's how veterans attorneys will represent. Okay. Very good. Well, I'm glad you share those misconceptions with us. Um, any, any other tip that you can think of or take away, um, you know, regarding this whole process that you might've thought of or we missed? Um, no, I would just, urge um, those that are listening, if you're in the military or you're a veteran, just keep good records. I think that's just really important. Ultimately, it will help your case in the long run. Um, And if you have any questions or concerns along the way, um, you want to seek out assistance from a service officer or an attorney um, who regularly practices veterans law. Yes, I I do tell clients that if there's an area that I can't help with them, I I say you go to an attorney who does this type of stuff, not someone who, you know, concentrates in other areas, someone who, you know, when you do it on a daily basis, you really do, you know, develop expertise. Um, And in your case, of course, you used to work at the VA. So that's, that's even better. Um, So how, uh, so if there is a veteran who's at the stage where, you know, he or she needs help, how, how can you help them if they were to call you? What, what do you do? Sure. So, uh, there's two ways you can get in touch with us, actually more than two ways, but (laughs) you can call me directly. I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, my phone number is 301-761-1735. Um, I'll be happy to talk to you about your case, answer any questions. If we can help you great. If not, at least we can give you some guidance on how to proceed. Um, you can call our toll free number. Uh, that's 877-838-1010. It's 1010. Um, and speak to anyone, uh, on the phone. Um, any of our attorneys would be happy to speak with you to answer any questions that you may have. And really those are probably the, the two ways you can reach us, um, on Facebook. You can reach us on uh, our own website. Um, so goodmanallendonnelly.com, check that out. Uh, we have our own veterans military page, uh, or veterans benefits practice group. Um, so many ways in which to reach us and we're happy to answer any questions that you have. That was fantastic, David. You really enlightened and armed our listeners with knowledge. I know I, I learned a lot just by listening to you share your expertise as well. 
Um, and I hope perhaps we can have you back on the show to talk about some of the new developments as they occur, or things that have can have significant impacts for our veterans. Um, this is such an important topic. It's very important for veterans who, you know, do have injuries. And, you know, the United States government, uh, DOD, Veterans Affairs, wants to, you know, compensate veterans who have uh, incurred disabilities so, and, and get the benefits they deserve. So I'm glad there are people like you helping veterans um, you know, get what they deserve after serving their country. So thank you so much, David. I really enjoyed this uh, topic, and I hope everyone else you know, got a lot of benefit from it. And they can listen to it over and over to, to listen to the different parts uh, maybe they have questions on, and uh, we'll have on the show notes your contact information as well. So thank you so much for spending part of your morning with us, David. Thank you very much for having me. really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. If you want to learn more about military law topics, you're armed with knowledge, subscribe to my podcast, head over to our website, militarylawmatters.com. And if you have a problem I can help you with or topics you'd like to learn about, send me an email at info at militarylawmatters.com. And if you know someone who this podcast may help, please share it with them. The takeaway today is always document the injuries you get while you are in the service. If you get injured, get it treated and documented. And if you need an assistant of attorney to help you with your VA, appeal. It is based on a contingency basis. You don't have to pay up front until your case is complete and you're successful with your appeal. Until next week, stay well and never ever give up because there is always hope.